we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Welcome to uh, Buffalo What's Next. Today, we're going to take a look at an aspect of race that we have not gotten into uh, in the many months of this program. As a matter of fact, nothing I can really think of that touches upon this. But we're going to talk about race and diet. That's a general approach to this because with us, we have Jessica Wilson, national author and dietitian. Jessica, thanks for joining us. You're so welcome. Great to be here. So you, you bring up some interesting points about here that I, first of all, haven't really heard too much about, but I will find some common ground that you brought to my attention. We look over here to our left, and we still have in here uh, uh, the victims of the uh, May 14th shooting at the uh, Topps Market. And one of the terms that we heard coming out of that, food desert, and then food apartheid. Mm -hmm. Honestly, something I didn't know existed Mm -hmm. before May, Um, sorry to say in that regard, well, what about that? That's something very familiar to you, it seems. Yeah, the food desert was more the older term. So the idea was that uh, there was just other things missing. So like a desert is barren. There's not much there. So that was how people were thinking about grocery stores in predominantly black and brown poor neighborhoods. Um, food apartheid takes into consideration that these neighborhoods are by design. So be it you know building permits, redlining, or just general you know lack of investment in those neighborhoods leads to, you know, just one grocery store or no grocery stores and reliance on corner stores for food. And you saw the news from the outside looking in. So when you saw it, it it rang very true to you. Absolutely. Um, And somebody I was talking to in Buffalo yesterday was talking about how easy it was to target a bunch of black people. If there's only one grocery store in a neighborhood, they're going to be shopping there. Let's talk about how diet and race work together, or maybe a better way of saying is work against each other. This is a big part of your work Mm -hmm. for someone who is black. Talk about, and we'll get into it generally and then break down to the specific, but talk about how there are so many structures in place that really make this a difficult, very complicated topic for people of color and specifically black people. Yeah, I like the word complicated because I think people try and say there's nuance, you know, there's, you know, little bits that are kind of the same kind of, you know, familiar, but indeed it is incredibly different. So starting, um, you know, centuries ago with enslavement, um, food had always been like a big part of, you know, families, black families, um, you know, coming together and people making food together. Um, similarly, you know, black women were also in the house cooking for those families there, but food had always been a big, you know, part of community building in black communities. And 
you know, today, traditionally, what we think of as like soul food is so penalized and pathologized um, by the quinoa and kale industrial complex. (laughs) (laughs) Is how I'll put it. Industrial complex. (laughs) Yeah. uh, (laughs) You you know, the avocado and olive oil, you know, lobbies. But um, the also something that I will throw in here is the same type of soul food and gentrifying neighborhoods is seeing a renaissance, you know, in, you know, let's say pork belly and collard greens. Um, So like the connections and disconnections when it comes to both soul food, what we think of as black folks food and white food um, has a very complex interaction, but the ways specifically that, you know, the, you know, health fields and medical fields are viewing soul food, particularly and only when, you know, black folks are talking about what they're eating um, is, you know, negative and pathologized and what people assume is what's making black folks unhealthy, right? If you just didn't eat these foods, you know, these soul foods, if you ate quinoa and kale or whatever (laughs) it is, um, you would be healthier. So we're looking at diet um, as the only thing that makes black folks less healthy when in fact, you know, it is a whole constellation of indicators, toxic stress. You know, we look at, you know, medical studies that show like people more exposed to racism have more, you know, high blood pressure, toxic stress really impacts diabetes, heart disease. But when we go to the doctor, you know, we're told that it's us, that our behaviors are things that are, you know, the things that need to change when, in fact, you know, it's the environments that have created these things in the first place. When you speak, you, you I just all these different ideas come to mind, things that I've heard of with people right across this table from me. Uh, and one of the more memorable things I had a a doctor, a medical doctor, mm-hmm. and a PhD candidate sitting in these two chairs right across from me, mm-hmm. telling me about how stressful mm. it is to be a black person. Yeah, and that and it's it opened up a whole mm-hmm. different perception because here are people who are above above the norm in terms of success, education, everything. Yeah, and yet they mm-hmm. feel individual stress simply because of their color. Right, when walking out the door. And so a lot of these, you know, my field is also eating disorders, and a lot of these, like, individual solutions to how we feel about our body or stress is to, like, think ourselves into, you know, feeling positive about our bodies or about our environment. But we still have to walk out the door, you know? Like, it doesn't matter, you know, all of my, you know, self-care or the stuff that I am doing when I still have to go out and, you know, interact in these environments. So, yeah, people, you know, are creating these individual solutions to societal and structural problems and really not taking into account the full person and everything that they have going on. And stress leads to choices when it comes to diet. It also leads to negative impacts Mm -hmm. on your metabolism and and just the way you, you basically go about your business. Right. So in food access as well. So looking at those environments, um, people in poverty often go in waves of having, you know, food at certain times of the week or certain times of the month or no food. And right, those impacts that it has on, you know, appetite, but just body weight. It's really protective for folks who don't have enough access to food to be able to hold on and store 
a bunch of food. And so we see in folks who, you know, don't have consistent access to food, the likelihood that their bodies are just going to, you know, be larger, be, you know, if we're going to call it overweight, overweight. Um, and nothing like that is factored into, you know, an experience when I walk into a doctor's office. We don't look at all those historical, you know, traumas and stresses. So you as a dietitian, as you address this, how do you address it? <laughs> I guess that, because uh-huh. it sounds like you're not getting a lot of help necessarily from somebody's primary oh, care. Oh, yeah, no. uh, Somebody <laughs> in the emergency room, wherever, mm-hmm. somebody might be getting some sort of care. So how do you then try to help people walk through this? Yeah, um, unlike, you know, the people who will talk to folks and just tell them to eat less salt or you know, eat less saturated fat or the simple answers. I always make sure to let people know that the ways that their bodies are showing up is not their fault, right? It's not like some moral or personal failing, which is so often the narrative for folks, but like the ways and the stuff that is happening in your body, the family history is something that we never look at when it comes to, well, something that a lot of people tend to, you know, disregard when it comes to body size and diabetes and other things. Um, the way that that is pathologized, I try and talk about that first. So, you know, you're in this office with me. I just want to let you know that I don't blame you for any of this, that none of this this is your fault. So knowing that, like, and hopefully creating some ease because already people's, you know, defenses are up, like going to this dietitian that they feel are going to be the food police and tell them everything (laughs) they're doing. Yeah, wrong. So if we're not doing that, like, how can I help you? You know, for some people, you know, they're, they think they're just going to be told to eat differently. But oftentimes for me, it's like, how can we get you food in the first place before I tell you, you know, which foods are, quote, healthy and unhealthy? Yeah, actually, just before we, we jumped in here, I was talking to Charles uh, Gilbert, our producer, and, you know, he um, grew up in the neighborhood right around the, the, the tops over on the east side of Buffalo. And he brought that up, how, you know, there just aren't, you know, you know, you're not walking down the street and seeing Whole Foods. You're not down, right. you know, you're seeing, a, you know, Panera Bread or whatever <laughs> type of place that might have, quote unquote, healthier options. Right. It's just not there for you. Mm-hmm. So, again, to that, the the problem is there for an individual. How do we help these individuals find a better way? giving more options so there should not just be one grocery store um in a neighborhood if i am walking you know to a bus or to school you know and i have to stop and get food like how can we have more options available to folks um yeah so ending food apartheid would be a great step uh, but also looking at income inequality and why these things are happening so why can i you know do i have to rely on food assistance food pantries rather than just being able to go to a grocery store and buy what my family needs so i'm going in cycles of the types of food that i eat or i'm reliant on somebody else for same like say fruits and vegetables and of course when we're looking at food there is food that is cheaper than others, right? Produce right. is expensive. It spoils also. People have the perception that frozen vegetables, which are fine, are um, unhealthy because of society and what you know we've been told about foods. So how can we just make it easier for people and environments that support the ways that people would prefer to be eating? And when you were talking about um, food assistance, you're, it brought to mind a conversation we had before we went on the air about your practice and 
San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And the people that you're trying to assist and help through some very difficult issues and just that, that they may not have any food right. for a given day mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. I know you have found some, help people find some solutions to that, but it really, it leads to all sorts of other issues yeah. when you don't have that. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. obvious, but from a dietitian standpoint, you're looking at a person's overall health and how what they eat impacts them. Mm-hmm. So talk me through what you see and hopefully, you know, what kind of, if I can use the word solutions, maybe that's not the right word. It might be a little too grand to use, but mm-hmm. how you, you you go about this, what, what somebody who leaves you when, uh, when you've talked to them, what they might be going to, to do. Sure. So oftentimes people just show up and, and say, like, I'm eating all these unhealthy foods, right? Like, okay. for, like I'm, you know, it's like confession time. <laughs> like, I eat whatever, you know, and I'm just letting the, you know, dietitian know up front. And they already come in thinking that everything that they're doing is wrong. Um, and so when folks are only eating one meal a day, it could be to, you know, access or disability, you know, and just the capacity to go out and get groceries or whatever it is. Um, so we talk about how to or what my, you know, goals are for this person is to eat more food. And if money is the problem, right, I am saying things like, OK, how can we get you even like ramen noodles and how can we add tuna or canned chicken or frozen vegetables to those things? And people will be like, I shouldn't eat noodles. I'm like, you only eating one meal is really what I'm concerned about here. And I know that you're trying to buy, quote, healthy foods and spending more money on these things. But you know, if you don't get enough calories, if you don't get enough protein, if you don't get enough nutrients, like that is not going to put you in the direction that you're hoping to go. So a lot of it is like calories and less expensive items, um, especially for, you know, folks who aren't able to get to all these free food resources. So how can I help in a way, you know, that makes sure that they're just getting enough food? You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. More to come right after this on WBFO. Our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world. Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Garden Wisdom for Western New York and Southern Ontario. Learn the secrets to planning, cultivating, and nurturing your own extraordinary garden using time-proven solutions and sustainable methods. Garden Wisdom, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Jessica Wilson on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, Jessica is a dietitian. She's an author. Uh, we're going to talk about her book here in uh, just a little bit, but I want to continue on this uh, conversation uh, because you also can recall as a young person, mm-hmm. going to a dietitian yourself. Yeah. 
How did that go? Terrible. <laughs> well, I mean, my memory of it, like, is so simple. So telling children, you know, whose bodies and brains are still developing, like, how they should be eating is, first of all, not helpful. Like, I don't remember much of being a child anyhow. But putting the, um, like, responsibility on children, you know, when we're talking to them and teaching them, say, about my plate or, you know, whatever dietary guidelines there are, I don't have control of much in the first place. And so what was happening in my environment, but also I will say as a black child, you know, I was just at the higher end of the growth chart. You know, I was sailing across the top. I thought mm-hmm. it was a good thing until somebody told me that my body was a problem and I needed this dietitian to help me fix it. And so that's also like the early, you know, or mid eighties when we start talking about fat and like we start eating snack wells and all of these <laughs> foods. Wells. We stop eating <laughs> eggs because they have saturated fat and all of these like really you know restrictive messages and so I definitely got caught up in that because I thought my body was a problem and all these things are going to be the solutions yeah you to hear that your body is a problem yep your body is a problem you're a young Mm -hmm. you're you're a child child you're hearing that Mm -hmm. how did that impact you how you know how did it did it create issues for you moving forward for a while yeah um I was very conscious about my body size because anytime, you know, I would lose weight through whatever was happening, I would get all this positive feedback from family, from the doctors. I remember this glowing report card. It was just, how have you, you know, managed to lose weight? And at that time, it was because I moved to a neighborhood that was safer, right? And so I was able to go out from like 7 or 10 a.m., stay out till dark, you know, rollerblading, going to the pool with my friends versus, you know, beforehand I had been stuck inside um, and like in a less safe neighborhood, didn't have friends in the neighborhood. So just all of the stuff that I was doing is very concentrated indoors. But none of that was discussed, right? It was like exercise or whatever. I didn't start exercising when I moved to a safer neighborhood. I was just out and about. Or being a kid. Yeah, doing fun things. But this glowing report card from, you know, family and the doctor really like showed me that this is what I have to do, you know, in order to be like accepted when my body is no longer a problem. Uh, you found your way into the uh, field of, of, of being a dietitian. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting when you started going into this field, mm-hmm. how many other black people did you find inside the <laughs> Zero. field? Zero. Okay, we say I met <laughs> Zero. A, di- a black dietitian. You know, the first time I like, met and connected with a black dietitian was 2020, which is wild. I was, you know, went to undergrad in California, internship in grad school. In Oregon, never, ever did I ever find another black dietitian. What what do you attribute that to now that you have some time to, to reflect? Um, I wonder if it has to do with, like, our experiences, with black folks' experiences at doctors and at dietitians where we're just told that everything is wrong and we're doing everything wrong. Um, so, like, that would not make someone want to go into the field. I'd be honest, you know, when I say that I went into the field initially to try and fix people's bodies because I got so much positive feedback for that. So that I, you know, definitely the wrong reasons. Um, But, you know, I definitely attribute it to like it being a very thin white lady field, which was my experience then. And just folks not seeing themselves, you know, as having that as an option. Is that when you when you said that, you know, the whatever, whatever a perfect 
person should look like mm-hmm. from a diet standpoint. Yeah. When you were a child, what did that person look like? Oh, Can definitely you... a thin white girl, for sure. Um, yeah, simply. A thin white girl. Yeah. Um, so you, you go into this field, and it did you have a sense of the race, racial implications of this once you went into the field? Sure. So I, um, even in my education, I say that I was taught what they should, you know, what they, what they black yeah, that's folks. That's interesting. Expand on that. Like yeah. They, when you, you have the, they black folks, they Latino folks, they, you know, Indian folks. And all of us were eating basically too much carbs, but in one form or another, you know, um, Asian folks, South Asian folks were eating rice, which is bad, so don't do that. Hmm. Um, Latino folks were, oh my goodness, having tortillas with a meal? Bad. You know, black folks, you know, soul food, whatever that is intended to mean. Um, and, you know, just a bunch of high salt stuff, which is just bad. Um, so, yeah, we were told what they ate, um, which was inherently pathologizing. Like, I'm sitting there, you don't see me in this classroom. Or, you know, all the heads swivel to, like, the Asian person in the room, the black person in the room when we're talking about how unhealthy, you know, we are or they are. You have uh, written a book. It just came out this week, as a matter of fact. You you came to Western New York to speak to the folks over at, at Buff State. But uh, your book uh, just came out uh, the other day, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. It's always been ours. Yes. Rewriting the story of black women's bodies. Mm-hmm. What about that title? What made you choose that title? It was... Like one of the original ones just thrown out there. I think yeah. we had like five general titles because the book is pretty complex. I mean, we're talking about bodies. So which was really, you know, would speak or could speak to all of the things that were happening in the book. And, you know, since then we've pointed out like that so many things have already been ours, but they've just been pathologized or problematized. You know, our joy has been ours. You know, the, our cultural foods have always been ours. Our bodies really have been ours, but society has written these stories about our bodies that, you know, make them seem like a problem. So, like, how can we recognize that none of the things that are said about us, you know, are our fault or ours to own, but really these things have always been ours? And you didn't want to write this book initially. Oh, no, I sure did not. That sounded like a lot of work. I was asked multiple times <laughs> by the same person uh, who, you know, was telling me that this book would be really important. Um, and I said, you know, that sounds like a lot of work. And she said, but the people who can't access, you know, black dietitians or culturally competent dietitians, you know, can't access this book. So, you know, you can think about this book for them. And then I really did start, you know, changing and thinking about how to reach the most people rather than just one-on-one. And uh, it's been brought to my attention by people a lot smarter than me that writing is thinking. <laughs> so, and, and so while you're writing this book, mm-hmm. what came to you? And were there oh, realizations yeah. for you that mm-hmm. wow, I'm, I'm seeing this? I'm seeing new elements of a field that I've obviously have a keen interest in, but things that that emerged for you mm-hmm. that were new insights. The more so myself and my experience, I was quite surprised. Um, so the first section of the book, I talk about ways that black women in society try to survive all of these, you know, situations um, and narratives about us. And I write about uh, respectability, restriction and resilience. And it was really in the resilience chapter. I was just read, like writing some examples of what black women have to go through in the sure. workplace, read it back 
and said, oh, my goodness, if somebody had told me that I would be devastated for them. And I just like had brushed it off as something, you know, that we can't, you know, speak about or express concerns about because we're already considered to be too much in a workplace. And so that was actually in my profession, you know, it was in, you know, coordinated treatment teams where, you know, me advocating for students or addressing, you know, race in the room. um, That's where, you know, a lot of negative, you know, feedback or pushback came from. And so I was always navigating, you know, that as a black dietitian among, you know, white treatment team members who were treating people with eating disorders. And I was like, hey, these things are important. We need to talk about size. We need to talk about race. And they're like, hmm. No, no, that's really not what this is about. You, you, you said you had examples about the workplace. Yeah. Can we go through uh, maybe some of those for us, please? <laughs> where do we start? Yeah, where do we start? Yes. Um, so working backwards, a lot of it, of course, came around, you know, the 2020, you know, discussions about race. Um, and a lot of people were talking about all their learning that they were doing and just like having me be witness to white women's learning. <laughs> I was like, this is this is not my this is not my job here, um, which is really a theme when working, you know, with therapists who are always trying to do their anti-racism work. Um, they like hmm, end up saying things. We'll just say that are inappropriate, but I can't, you know. They're trying and trying to do a nice thing. And so me expressing concern about their trying and their like genuine, you know, thinking about it is a problem. Right. Um, so that was like that's been a lot of, you know, like having then to navigate spaces with those folks. But I talk in the book about my uh, epilepsy of a seizure disorder and how those stressors and how general stressors in the workplace really impact my brain chemistry. Um, and I would sit through, you know, those type of meetings, end up, you know, at lunchtime or whenever, like having a seizure, um, but still staying at work because I couldn't let people see that that type of stuff, that racism in the workplace, you know, impacted me in a way that I couldn't handle it. Um, but it all accumulated and needing to take them when my neurologist was like, you need to take a month off of work because this is silly. And I was I started crying. Mm. Because I was like, no, I can't, you know, show these people that I am weak. I have to stay here uh, because if they think the black woman, you know, needs time off, you know, they're going to think I don't work hard or I just, you know, need a break. And yeah, that's the stuff that. It's quite a load to carry. Yeah. Um, how, how are you dealing with that? Have you been able to move beyond that a little bit? Have you learned from that or is it something that still you feel like you carry that around still? I definitely carry it around. I ended up quitting. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling that was, yeah. that was part of it. So this book gave me a little space um, to really rethink what my you know, working environment looks like, uh, more private practice, more contract work. So, you know, I'm not subject to, you know, human resources, you know, investigations or conversations, <laughs> stuff <laughs> like that. So if I'm on my own, like it is harder, but is it, you know, worth it for my mental health and the answer is yes I always say that I take after my father who runs his own like bolt repair business by himself by himself and my spouse has reminded me like you're a Wilson you know like (laughs) you will just do better when you don't have silly people around you wow yeah when you were talking to people as a dietitian, then do you help explore that part of the of their 
yeah. of a person's psyche? Yeah, the one of the fourth chapter in the book is about restriction, and really the narrative there is all of the ways that Black women make ourselves smaller, and so really that is the you know the theme of the first third, you know, in engaging in resilience, like making myself smaller in order to make white women feel more comfortable. It's a way that I'm like shrinking myself. Respectability politics also come in, like making myself smaller so other people feel more comfortable, but restriction in a of itself, so in the form of eating disorders particularly, serves such different functions, oftentimes for, you know, black women, women of color, as, you know, that as a way to just survive in a society that is always telling us we're too much. So by shrinking ourselves, literally, this time. Okay. Yeah, literally shrinking ourselves, we can take up less space, we can be less of a threat to people around us, and it works when... You know, we're told, I use the story of a gymnast, um, Alexis Brown, who was always told, you know, she was more muscular, more powerful, and was really supposed to do just floor and vault, the power quote events, okay. but wanted to do bars and beam. And so, you know, she was always engaging in disordered behaviors to shrink herself so that she could look and literally be judged well on the two events that she was told that she should not be participating in. So, you know, it's... You know, one example of like the direct impacts and implications of us, you know, being able to literally shrink ourselves. So that is something that I bring in to client um, relationships and, you know, bringing up respectability and like me understanding that all of these, you know, tools have been helpful. And I'm worried about you because you're not eating enough food when it comes to folks with eating disorders. And I worry about you because your labs look a certain way. And, you know, you're malnourished right now. And sometimes the trade-off is just easier for them to keep small. And it's just not our time to work on things. That's uh, got a disturbing, mm-hmm. a real disturbing element to it that, you know, we feel we have to shrink ourselves oh, yeah. mm-hmm. to fit in. Mm-hmm. And both there's a, the literal and the metaphorical yes. element to that. Mm-hmm. Let's explore uh, maybe a little bit of both. Let's talk about the, the metaphorical element that in the workplace or mm-hmm. to be in some sort of organization oh, yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. we feel that we have to shrink ourselves. Do you find that uh, that that's a common, you oh, find yeah. that common among uh, women of color? Yeah, the saying is, you know, you have to work twice as hard to get half as much, right? So like overworking oneself is like just a requirement of folks in the workplace, Um not, you know, dressing appropriately, so, and quote, professionally, <laughs> uh, more more professional, honestly, than I'm dressed right now, but um, is one thing that we're told to do in order to be respected, um, engaging in respectability, so being making sure that we're palatable, that we're not, you know, too loud in meetings, so just, like, restraining and containing, you know, is one way that I tend to put it, and all of these ways to make us, you know, fit in or, like, not seem as much of a threat to those around us. So that's one way we make ourselves smaller. The uh, uh, story about the gymnast yeah, is really something. Here's somebody who's probably a, a, a physical specimen somebody who might be you know we were talking about growth charts before we're yeah. talking about somebody who's at the the one percent of the one percent of the one percent mm-hmm. and feeling that she has to diminish herself oh yeah absolutely and she did right because it's literally being judged um it's not you know objective measurements for how somebody does in gymnastics but when you're being judged by older white women you know you need to look the part yeah and so you see that type of thing then in your uh, 
clients mm-hmm. or patients, I'll, either one yeah. I'll use, whichever is more appropriate. <laughs> sure. um, they're, they're coming in and you realize they're just not eating at mm-hmm. all or enough to mm-hmm. be healthy. And it's often in predominantly white programs. Um, so, and I worked for predominantly white institutions. And so having like there be one or two black women in a class or in a program, you know, was pretty common. And, you know, those, you know, black women who perhaps were the smarter ones in the class would still be competing for their, you know, jobs with mediocre white folks. And that means a lot. So finding a way to make oneself smaller and conform both literally and figuratively, um, you know, is thought to help. Um, so, yeah, people would have eating disorders and just find, you know, the positive feedback they got, the ways that people percep- uh, perceive them as, you know, working hard at the gym and all of these things and just like ways that they were trying to like have their body align with what society expected of people who are, you know, too much is, yeah, a way to survive and hopefully thrive. But indeed, it was killing. Yeah, so you see somebody who's got already has stress. <laughs> yeah. Now they're not eating enough. Mm-hmm. Obviously, long-term yeah. uh, health impacts. Definitely. So chronic stress is already related to a bunch of heart, you know, uh, blood pressure. Also, weight, we don't, you know, think about it. Uh, chronic stress is directly correlated to, well, not directly, but very related to body size. Those who are experiencing more chronic st- stress tend to be more overweight, um, and when people are able, yes, to malnourish themselves, um, that obviously has impacts on cognitive functioning. So we look at people who are restricting, people who have, you know, restrictive eating disorders and the both gray matter and white matter in their brain shrink, right? And that really impacts, you know, your ability to do a lot of cognitive thinking, but also another thing it does is numbs. So, you know, people who are starving, you know, have more of a numbing effect on emotions. And that is also a survival tool. You know, I always think of Alexis and if she had been able to really think and feel through the process of being a gymnast, um, she wouldn't have been able to compete if she was, you know, very aware of all the racism that she was experiencing. And she agrees. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with uh, Jessica Wilson, dietitian and author, uh, with us here on Buffalo What's Next. Jessica, you even said when you were younger, you had that image in your mind. It was there Mm -hmm. that the perfect body is a skinny white woman. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask, what should be the ideal image for a black woman, a real thing? But at the same time, is it maybe just that there shouldn't be any image at all? That, That that's not something that any of us should have. Right. So it's very big, but... It's, you know, well documented that our body size has very little to do, you know, with our health outcomes. It's more all of this environmental stuff. You can look up adverse childhood events and just how that stress, you know, really impacts, you know, our health. And, you know, I often also see like thin people, thin white folks who don't get the care they needed because their doctors don't believe that they, you know, have sleep apnea, for example, or even, you know, have, you know, uh, I've seen folks not believed for having cancer until it was, you know, late stage in both larger folks and smaller folks. So larger folks, you know, they're always told to lose weight first, Hmm. but they have cancer. Um, A student of mine had a parent die because of the, you know, he needed to lose that 50 pounds before he was taken seriously. 
So like this impacts all of us. That was, you know, a white student. So it really impacts all of us when we decide what health looks like and we decide, you know, whether or not it's, you know, your weight that's the problem that happens all the time. Um, or, you know, how, you know, thinner folks are, you know, not believed also for some of the stuff that they have. So when it comes to this is a long way to get around sure. to what, what health looks like. Yeah. And we think you know, in society and we're reinforced as, you know, healthy looks thin, it looks fit, it looks upper or middle class. Um, because if you, you know, look poor, you're inherently also decided to not be healthy. Um, so all of these uh, examples are reasons that, you know, black women, you know, we will dress up to go to the doctors versus, you know, a lot of my white clients would just come in in their pajamas, hmm. honestly, as a college student, which, you know, I think is fine. But okay. like that would not happen. That doesn't happen a lot for, you know, my black and brown, you know, friends. and Because of the way they think they would be seen or perceived. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, you know, research more of, you know, medical lingo so we can appear that we know what we're talking about at the doctor's office. So yeah, what health looks like is still, you know, thin, white, upper middle class. And it's not true. So what as a health is really a social construction. So how can we, yes, start to dismantle that? And of course that's very large because that's in medical school and everything. But, you know, as a society, how can we stop policing people for, you know, their health, their weight, their food choices, and really look at the structural issues that have impact how we think about these things. So your advice to anybody who's listening right now, when it comes to diet, what your body looks like, and there's, like you said, there's all these social constructs, which is a very (laughs) interesting part of this. It seems to me like you're just kind of scratching the surface on this field. But your advice, your thoughts on people who are thinking, oh, I, I eat the wrong stuff, I yeah. do this, whatever. What do you want to, what can you say as a general statement? Obviously, it's you deal one on one with clients, but sure. you're, you're dealing with a few more than one on this, on this radio mm-hmm. program. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the thing that I hope people take away from the book is that your body is not that problem that you're told to be. So if, you know, because that results in like shame and blame and all these other things that are going on that just increase toxic stress. So if you know that your body is not a problem to be solved, like then what does that release to you when you're able to look at, you know, how you're interacting in the world? So like once my clients know that it's not on them, then, you know, oftentimes I've seen people be able to start eating again. Um, and like exploring more like that the things that they have been told about their bodies have been you know false so how can they then go forward and then also building community is something that I really find so if we can't rely on our workplaces you know if we're over if we like rely on let's see you know external forces and are forced to be resilient how can we fall back say on community like the people who are exploring the same things with us and have those be the people who prop us up um so we're so not are you talking about trying to find conversations yeah. find peer groups not mm-hmm. ne- maybe not necessarily a, an organization that's right. they got bylaws and stuff like sure. that you're talking about hey you know mm-hmm. talk to your friend talk to your, yep. your brother talk to your sister yeah oftentimes you know in families you know it'll be you know either a grandmother or an aunt or an uncle who's just policing everybody <laughs> yes for their weight and then they're you know i'll talk to people and like oh my cousin you know also gets 
you know, that type of treatment in addition to me. Um, so what conversations can I inspire for folks to just have, you know, you not be alone? How can you feel seen? And like, what does that allow you to do, you know, as a very small individual solution to a structural problem? Jessica Wilson, her uh, book is called It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. Jessica, we've had a nice conversation here about diet and race. Mm -hmm. Something like I said, we've done a lot of programs already. We haven't touched on this one. Hopefully we can touch on it more as we move forward. Uh, Jessica, thanks very much for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much. Our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world. Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. Listen to Buffalo What's Next weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBFO or on the WBFO app. Use the Talk to Us feature to leave your questions and comments. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Dave Debo. We talk a lot on this program about the needs of the East Side. And unless you're Penny Beckham, it's easy to see those needs in the abstract. I stopped by the State Tabernacle Church of God on Glenwood Avenue one day to see her Plates of Love ministry. And this is where we are. Where she feeds the hungry of Buffalo's East Side, where she notices exactly what those needs look like. We've had so many people come through here today. It just started slowing down, even with the snow. Her lunch rush had just ended near 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I think it was the first 45 minutes, it was 84 and 45 minutes. Um, sometimes the first hour, it was over 100 uh, meals were served in, in the hour. We're just now beginning to slow down some and be able to catch our breath. But the need is so great. We have found out that there is so many hungry people, and we're here to serve children. Uh, men, women, uh, seniors. We get a lot of seniors that come uh, both days to get a hot meal. Today we're serving barbecue meatloaf, mashed potatoes, we had broccoli, we had rolls, we had dessert, we had drinks, but we also, and if you didn't want the barbecue meatloaf, we had barbecue meatballs. We had, and what we tried to do is make sure, because some people don't eat beef and they don't eat pork. So we also had barbecue chicken meatballs for those who don't. And then we also had peas, and we try to make sure they have the condiments. Um, so we do have the salt, the pepper, the butter, the hot sauce. We give them all the condiments as well. And also, not only do we give them a meal, we try to give them other things as well. So when they first come in the door, um, my brother Lewis is at the door taking the count of the people who come in. And we try to have little snacks for them. Um, some of them get maybe with this candy, they get uh, nuts or something. So we'll have a little snack for them that they can choose from. And then they, 
then they come into the dining hall. And today we had cereal, we had peanut butter, we had other things for them to take as well. And then they go to JR and then they'll get their drinks and they'll get their dessert and their meal. And then they exit out the door. And we get up on Saturday and we told you a little bit about what we serve on Wednesday, but on Saturdays we do grits, uh, eggs, tater tots, biscuits, then I have pork, bacon, or sausage, and then I have turkey bacon. We have juice, you know, we have water, and we have dessert. If you're serving on a Wednesday, what is your Tuesday like? Our Tuesdays, I, I do shopping on Tuesday for the ministry, and then like on yesterday, we had um, one of the elders of our church here, um, he came and mixed up the meatball. So he was, I mean, the meatloaf. So he was here about an hour and he mixed it up. And then we come early in the morning because we get here around seven o'clock in the morning. And then we start putting things in the oven to cook. And so that we can be prepared to open at 1130 because we know the Buffalo weather. And like today, it was snowing. So it, we gave extra effort to make sure that those doors open on time. And after that, we move into the sanctuary for a more quiet interview. She emphasizes that the variety and even the opening of the doors on time is really just about dignity. She says her customers don't get second rate just because they have needs. It goes back to what are you serving the people? What kind of product are you giving to the people? If you give them something that you would give to your own family, that, more than anything, will resonate with the people. You give them respect. You give them more than just throw away food. Absolutely. If I wouldn't give it to my family, I would not, and I will not give it to them. You know, because that, that's the key. And not only that, we give them condiments. When I'm at home, if I do a, fix a burger or a hot dog or something like that for my family. We have the ability to put, uh, whether you want um, mustard ketchup or if you want onions or whatever, we give all of that to them. They choice, what do you want? Do you want some onions on it? You want some dill pickle? You know, what do you want? So it's important to me, you know, personally, that we give them something that they can be proud of. The people themselves express the appreciation they have for what we give. When you take and you say that you want to serve and give the people what you would give to your own family, there's a cost associated with that. Eggs is extremely high. Everything is extremely high, but so far, thank God, we have been able to manage. Obvious question, maybe, why do you do it? Love for people. This church where we operate out of is State Tabernacle Church of God in Christ. And my grandparents was the founders of this church. And back in the 40s, that's what my grandparents did. They fed the community. The people in the community know that if they were hungry, if they needed something to eat, they could come to this particular church. And I'm a member here. Cold Spring Community Foundation is a separate entity, but the church allows us to come in here and operate. And we have volunteers, uh, we have donors who people donate to help us um, keep the doors open. And every donation goes right into feeding the people. You grew up on Purdy? We're actually at the corner of Glenwood and Purdy. How has the neighborhood changed? When I was growing up, it was a mixed neighborhood. Now, and I'm not gonna say that 
now it's predominantly African-American because there are other nationalities that have moved into the community. So I think it's going back to being a mixed community because not only here do we serve African-Americans, but we serve all nationalities. You'd be surprised at the different nationalities that come through those doors because we serve everybody. Everybody's treated the same. Everybody is loved on when they come through the doors. This might be a pretty obvious question for a woman of faith, but do you have hope? I do. I do. I, I really do have hope. With the, the uh, shooting on Jefferson, you know, this ministry has never been blessed more. There were people from out of state, churches, individuals that actually sent money in to be able to keep this ministry going. We had a wish list of uh, a commercial two-door freezer, and we were able to get that on last year. There were things that was on our list to receive that would make the load lighter, and make us be able to do what we do with ease. And a lot of the wish list items have been purchased because of the donation and the love of not only companies, but individuals as well. Does the goodwill that was perhaps triggered by the shooting last? Are you hopeful for a change in overall race relations? Yes, I'm, yes, because I do have the love of God in me. When I see people, I want to serve them not because of what they are, who they are. I have people coming through those doors, and some of the people come through those doors, they are homeless. Some of them were living on the street in shelters. Some of them do not smell that good. But I tell you, and then you have some that comes through, and they're dressed nice. They smell nice. They look nice. But we don't treat one any different than the other. Because actually, if anyone needs more love is that person that's down on their love. Because by the grace of God, I thank God it's not us, but it could have been. So you need to know that you can be up today and down tomorrow. So it's a cycle, a cycle that goes around. You can be up today, doing well today, and tragedy or anything can help you tomorrow. We are with Penny Beckham from the Plates of Love Food Pantry, about four blocks and eight months removed from the top shooting. For her, in such a tight-knit community, it is never that far away. It was a tragedy what happened. We felt it deeply because one of the individuals that was uh, murdered, he volunteered here. He volunteered speaking and ministering to the people when they came to the door. You're talking about Deacon Haywood Patterson. And he volunteered, and as a matter of fact, Deacon Patterson and I would be the last two leaving on Saturdays because I would be cleaning up from the soup kitchen, and Deacon Patterson would be, after volunteering with us, he would also stay around and clean the church and set up for Sunday morning service. That speaks to his commitment. Tell us something we might not know about just his personality. What can I say about him? He loved people. He loved his church. He loved to dress. He was always dressed, always looked good. Deacon Patterson was not, what I loved about him is he would let you know that he has made mistakes in his life. And he did things that he wished that he could have taken back or not have done if he knew then what he knew now. However, he let 
people know, even those that come through those doors, that you can't do anything about your past. You can't change your past. But what are you doing about your present? What are you doing about your future? There is a better way. There is a light. And he loved his church. He loved the Lord. And he would let them know, come to church. It's not too late. No matter what things look like, it's not too late. Did you know other victims? Yes. As a matter of fact, I knew Mother Young. I've known her um, for years. And the one they call Cat was related to my husband. And then one of the gentlemen that was murdered also worked with my husband at Ford Motor. It's a small community, you might as well say. And so, so many people knew so many of the victims of this senseless crime. Beyond the shooting, what does Buffalo need? Is there, was there a change that that brought out, good or bad? Is there a huge unmet need right now that might be different than what it was before then? Well, one of the signs that you see when you come into Buffalo is they say the city of good neighbors. And we all know down through the years it's, that there were a lot of segregation. There is racism in Buffalo. But when the top shooting happened, we, have, we dwell on the negative more than the positive many times. And even though it was a horrific thing, I can't just dwell on that. I have to say, okay, what can we take out of this? What can we benefit from this? And one of the things I did see that I loved is people from all over, not only Buffalo, not only the state, but from people from all over the country was actually coming together, doing things for the community. And I love reaching out. For us, City, which owns Citibank, Citibank was here. They've done quite a bit for us before this happened. And then when the shooting took place, they were here donating and setting up tables outside and just, you know, because Tops was closed. And we have a lot of elderly, we have a lot of handicapped, we have a lot of children who had no place to go to get something to eat. So they brought in a ton of food as well as others. Eight months later though, has the groundswell started to fade? Is it okay that it has now that the tops has reopened? Or uh, is there still a void? I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I think not only in terms of the shooting, but when you look at the city as a whole, even when things happen, when just say when we have storms or garbage pickup or just different things, a lot of times the community feels as if we're the last to be served. Did you see that during the Christmas blizzard? I live in the Kensington Bailey area. I live there and uh, right down the street there was a man who I guess he froze to death and he was right out on the ground, you know, and that's a life, that's a person. But there was nothing that could be done for him because of, you know, the storm. I think there should be greater responses in our community, but not only that, our community themselves must do some things. We must take responsibility and continue to help and respect one another. When you say community groups need to step forward more or, or there needs to be more responsibility, what do you mean? Well, you know, even before the community groups, I think the community as a whole, even individuals, we need to look out for our neighbors. I was around for the blizzard of 77, 
And when the blizzard of 77 happened, we checked on the elderly, we checked on the handicapped, we checked on the uh, single mother with children, we checked on one another, and we shared what we had. Be the city of good neighbors. In light of the shooting, in light of the things you just described, uh, I have a very abstract question for you. Does evil exist? Absolutely. But not only do evil exist, I believe God exists as well. Penny Beckham runs the Plate of Love. Their charitable arm is the Cold Spring Community Foundation on the corner of Glenwood and Purdy Streets in Buffalo. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.